Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right, week two in a message series called Starting Point. Now, if you were here last week, you heard us talking a little bit about the fact that everything has a starting point. Everything begins somewhere. Every living thing began someplace. You had a starting point. Your career had a starting point. Your marriage had a starting point. Every relationship you've ever had, every project you've ever taken on, every hobby you've ever had, and every living thing on this planet had a starting point. And the same is true for your faith. Your faith had a starting point. Now, for many of us, the starting point for our faith came when we were kids, right? We were young, whether, you know, whatever your reality may have been, whether you went to church, you know, uh, Sunday school, mosque, temple, or synagogue, uh, you know, wherever, wherever you, you receive things, wherever you learned, or if there was nothing at all, I found that people typically pick up a very similar faith framework. When we were kids, we picked a few things up. We learned a few things and kind of grasped a few things uh, within a very simple framework. A framework that included things like, God loves us. God answers prayer. God punishes evil and rewards good, so you better be good, right? And we, we learned these things right around the same time we learned about Santa Claus, yeah? We learned these things right about that age. And so we, we internalized these things and we believed them for a while on the way up. But what happened for many of us was the rigors of our adult life began to shoot holes in our faith framework. When we were kids, we internalized all these things, and we bought into it, and we believed it, and it mattered. But as we got to be adults, we're sort of, we, we asked, we started asking hard questions. Jesus loves me? Maybe. Jesus loves the little children? That's in the Bible, right? Jesus loves the little children? Fine, yeah, but I know a couple of kids who have cancer. I know that there are like tens of thousands of people starving to death every day, and a lot of them are children. Jesus loved them. Jesus heals people, right? Jesus heals people in the Bible. He can heal people. He didn't heal my mom. He didn't heal my dad. He didn't heal the person I was praying for. Everybody with me? The hard questions. You started asking the hard questions somewhere along the line, and your faith framework fell apart. It wasn't that it wasn't true. It just couldn't stand up to the rigors of adult life. So what is needed is a new starting point. We need this together because I don't know about you. I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to have a faith that, that, it, that, that is afraid of the tough questions. I don't want a faith that's scared to ask the tough questions. Some of you, you've asked the hard questions and you had somebody try to refer you back to the faith framework of a child. You asked a hard question and somebody said, well, you know, God still loves you and he means it all for good, so just, just, just pray and be thankful. And you're going, yeah, that was just profoundly unhelpful. That did nothing for me. You're asking me to fit back into a small faith framework. I'm not going to do that. Then I'm going to reverse my feelings on Santa Claus. Like, that's just not, that doesn't work anymore. So, we need a new starting point. We need to press reset. As adults, where does our faith begin and how does it work? We learned last week, and, and listen, if you're watching online, 
If you didn't hear last week's message, I really want to urge you to go back and listen to it. This whole series is going to make a lot more sense if you listen to it in order. So you guys too, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to it. I mean, I don't mean leave now and go listen to it, but after you leave here, go listen to it. What we learned last week was the starting point for our faith is not the Bible says. When you were a kid, for many of you, that starting point of your faith, from your faith came with this little sentence. The Bible says that's actually not the right starting point for our faith. I said this last week, and I was expecting to get blown up. I did get one email, but that was it. That made me happy. And I say that because some of you, like if you've been a Christian a long time, you're like, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible says is exactly where we should be making our start. I think you're wrong about this. I'm lovingly, forgive me, with humility, I'm right about this and I can prove it. For the first 300 years of our faith's existence, there was no Bible. I mean, the printing press didn't get invented until much later, but even the, the Bible, Ta Biblia, the actual, the, the, the 66 books that we understand as the Bible, it didn't even come into existence until 300 years after the resurrection. For 300, for three centuries, hundreds of thousands of people lived and died in their faith without ever having a Bible. There was no the Bible at the starting point of our starting point. So what was the starting point? What's the actual starting point? The starting point is the resurrection. He rose from the dead. That's the starting point of it all. So the question we come to quick is, who is Jesus? Who is he? And that's where we landed the plane last week. Now today, we come to a difficult topic. Uh, a, a, a question, an issue, a word people don't like to talk about much. A word only used in religious circles. And for some of you, it's a word you've kind of jettisoned because it's only ever been used in a verbal beatdown. So what I'm going to do is ask you today to stay with me and hear me out over the, over, the, over the course of this message. In other words, don't leave early and don't check out early. Stay with me. The word we're going to be talking about is Sin. Now, that's only a word that we ever use in religious connotations. We only ever use that word in church, right? When, you, when you're talking to your kids, if your kids did something wrong, you don't, you don't say, hey, you sinned against me. A cop doesn't pull you over for sinning. <laughs> Otherwise, we don't be getting pulled over a lot more. Uh, you're, you're, a judge doesn't give you a citation. You don't get convicted in a court of sin. Your boss doesn't ever say, you've got to come into my office, we've got to talk about your sin. Like, it's, we only ever use the word sin here in church. And for many of you, you check out as soon as you hear it because you grew up in a faith system, some of us grew up in a faith system where that word was only ever used to beat you down. And so you, you learned you're a sinner and you're terrible and you're awful and you must now spend the rest of your life in abject supplication like a worm. And you need to feel terrible about it all the time. And you left feeling worse than you did when you came in and gave up on it. So that word to you doesn't really hold any weight. It doesn't really mean anything. And so what we've done, a lot of us, is we've subbed out another word. We've kind of made a substitution. And the word we're subbing in for sin, it's a lot, it's a lot more manageable. It's a lot more tolerable. It's the word mistake. I didn't commit a sin. I made a mistake. We all make mistakes. The word, the word lands differently, right? It, it lands differently. 
Like if I said to you, raise your hand if you've made some mistakes in your life. Every one of us would raise our hands, right? We'd all raise our hands. Uh, every one of us would raise our hands. The only people that wouldn't raise their hands are the people out there like, I don't care what he says, I'm not raising my hand. Like, I'm, I'm with you, I, I'm one of you. That's what I would be doing. But in reality, if I said, I'm not saying it, you have to raise your hand, but if I said, raise your hand if you've made some mistakes in your life, we, we, you would feel weird about not raising your hand. You know, you, someone, you, someone would look at you and go, seriously, you've, you're, you're, oh, you're perfect? Give me a break. We've all made mistakes. But if I said... Raise your hand if you've committed some sin in your life. Most of you would go. Everybody in the front would be like, everybody, anybody else raising their hand? Is, is this an all skate? How does this work? What are we, you know, you wouldn't know. It hits different, doesn't it? It hits different, the word mistake. Because a mistake is something we make because of a lack of knowledge. We make a mistake because of a lack of information. A mistake is something you make on a math test, yeah? It's something you make, a, you, you just, you, you, you make a mistake and you didn't know. So I made a mistake, I didn't know, but now I know, thank you for correcting me. A mistake gets corrected, you can correct a mistake. So I didn't know, I did the thing, but I didn't know, and now I know, Thanks for correcting me, now I'm all better. That's kind of how we operate with it. The trouble is, the word mistake doesn't allow for a very important concept in our relationship to God and actually in our relationship to others as well. The word mistake doesn't allow for ownership. And you all know what I'm talking about because you've seen this at play Anytime a politician gets caught doing something they shouldn't, right? Anytime you find a politician or a CEO or somebody, you know, they got caught in an extramarital affair or they got caught embezzling money from the company or some, they were involved in some scandal, you'll find that person in, under a spotlight, standing at a podium, surrounded by a phalanx of microphones, and you will hear the words, mistakes were made, right? Mistakes were made. As if that's some grand, you know, uh, confession of, 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 of guilt and culpability. It's not. Oh, mistakes were made. You know, that's spin doctoring. That's not ownership. And here's something I know about you and something I know about me. Sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. Yeah, we make mistakes on purpose, and we tell ourselves, if I get caught making this mistake, can I claim that I didn't know? Yeah, you make a whole backstory up. Yeah, if I get busted doing this, if I get caught doing this, I could just say, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. And we make up plausible deniability trails for the mistakes that we know we're going to make. We make mistakes on purpose. Some, some of you have purchased airline tickets to go make a mistake. Some of you guys have a credit card that goes to another address because you don't want your spouse to see it. Some of you has a, have a browsing history that you are constantly erasing because you keep making a mistake. Church, come on. What do you call a mistake that hurts you and hurts somebody else that you keep doing on purpose? Yeah, it's a choice. Another word would be a sin. 
It's something you commit. It's something you do. You're doing it. You know you're doing it. You're not helping anybody by just pretending that it's, it's not real. You're not helping anybody by pretending it doesn't work and that you, you just didn't know. See, you can, you can correct a mistake, but you can't correct you. You can't correct you. You've tried. So many of you, you've asked yourself these questions, these hard questions. Why can't I correct this? Why can't I get better at this? Why can't I kick this to the curb? Why? Why do I keep getting so angry all the time? Why do I keep losing my temper? Why can't I stop lying to my husband? Why can't I stop lying to my wife? Why can't I stop eating so much? Why can't I stop drinking so much? Why can't I stop compulsive shopping or looking at websites I shouldn't be looking at or whatever it might be? How come I can't stop? Some of you have asked for help. You got a spouse or a friend who sees you making destructive decisions and they've tried to correct you and you won't be corrected. Some of you have paid somebody $125 an hour to sit across from them in the room to help correct you and it's not working. Why is that? It's because perhaps you're not a mistaker. You're a sinner. Maybe that's what's going on. Now understand something, and this, this is important. I've got to get right to it. When Jesus talks about sin, he never talks about sin with an eye towards condemnation. He always talks about sin with an eye towards restoration. Every time Jesus talks about sin, and I know, you don't necessarily have to take Jesus seriously yet. This is only week two. <laughs> I haven't told you yet why you need to take Jesus seriously. That'll come in a couple of weeks. But, you know, uh, if you take Jesus seriously, understand this. Whatever church you may have grown up in and however you heard it when you were a kid, when Jesus talks about sin, he never talks about sin with an eye towards beatdowns or shame or, or, or condemnation. He always talks about restoration. Why does Jesus talk about restoration? Because sin separates you from God. Sin separates you from God. It damages your relationship with your heavenly Father. And you know it's true if you're a parent. If you are a parent. Have you ever caught your son or daughter lying to you? I don't mean a two-year-old who breaks the cookie jar and blames it on the dog. I'm not talking about the adorable little fibs that a, a, a little kid. I'm talking about a child or, or even a young adult or a grown adult who spun a web with Machiavellian intent to deceive you about something. You ever uncovered that What did that do to you? It created a wound. It created a wound. That, that lie put distance between you and your son or daughter, and what breaks your heart isn't that they were dishonest or did I raise a dishonest person. It's not the, the violation of some moral code. It's that it hurts. They, put dis they damaged the relationship. Now the relationship is damaged. Now there's wounding here. Has your son or daughter, have your child ever stolen from you? 
Ever had your son or daughter steal something from you or betray you in some terrible way and you learn of it? Oh, it just breaks your heart. And it isn't the money. It's not that you're worried that, oh, my son or daughter is a dishonest person. It's that now the relationship is all jacked up and you want more than anything to be restored to your son or daughter. Kids in the room, you have no idea what a lie does to your parents. Hear this. If if you're a parent, you know that wound put distance. That wound created, created a barrier between you. That's what our sin does between us and God. That's what it does. It creates distance. It creates a gap. It separates us from him. So every time Jesus talks about sin, he talks about restoration, closing the gap. A heavenly father who just wants more than anything, what you want more than anything, to be restored to your son or daughter. And what has to happen for you to be restored to your son or daughter? It's very simple. They have to own it. Not just apologize, they have to own it. Anybody here ever been on the working end of an unintended or half-hearted apology? You ever have somebody just go, your son or anybody, you ever have somebody just go, sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. I said I'm sorry. What else do you want me to do? I said I'm sorry. You know, I mean, come on. Aren't we back to normal yet now? Aren't we good yet? Isn't this, aren't we restored? I said I'm sorry. Shouldn't that just clear the decks? You know and they know it doesn't clear the decks. It doesn't help. It doesn't do anything. Do you know why? Because you spoke words without ownership. You never took it on. You didn't even say, I'm sorry. You just said, sorry. Eventually, that'll evolve into, I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry, just, I'm sorry. Eventually, perhaps then, you might be seeing the approaching dawn of ownership. Maybe they're starting to, to, no, I'm sorry. Your son or daughter has to own it. Then and only then can they be restored to you. Then and only then, when they say something to the effect of, Mom, Dad, I know what I did. I, I don't fully understand how it hurt you, but I know that it hurt you, and I'm so sorry, and I'll never do it again. Then and only then can the relationship, that doesn't mean it's instant, but then and only then can the relationship move back to restoration. It requires ownership. You know that in your heart. You know it. It works the same way with you and God. So when Jesus talked about sin, he said some stuff. Jesus talked about sin. He said some stuff that that just messed people up. This This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 beginning at verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. You commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. You call someone an idiot, You're in danger of being brought before the court, and if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're hosed. The first century audience is hearing this and like, 
The, the, Jesus talks about the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like professional holy people. The Pharisees were a religious sect who made it their business to obey every single iota of the Levitical code, which is ponderous. I mean, this is, this is an insanely hard task. That's what they did. Pharisees just walked around all day being good. They got paid to be good. That was their whole jam. They were holy people. So ordinary people are hearing Jesus' teaching and going, my righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees? I'll never make it. I can't live up to that. And Jesus goes, yeah, it's worse. It gets way worse. You heard it was said, don't murder. To which a lot of people probably said, okay, I got that one covered. I've never murdered anybody. Perhaps there's hope for me. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm telling you, if you're even angry with somebody, you're in danger of judgment. And if you've ever cursed somebody, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And that's all for us. That's it. We live on Long Island. Every single person in this room is cursed at somebody in their life. Okay? That's just... <laughs> oh, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, to which some of his first century audience doubtlessly said, okay, got that one covered. I've never committed adultery. Perhaps there's hope for me. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Check this. If you've ever even looked at a woman with lust in your eye, with your eyes, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. To which every man in the room just went, oh, come on. <laughs> Wait, is my wife here? No, come on, man. Not cool. Not cool. So Jesus, what he does, this is crazy. Think about it. He sets the bar so impossibly high that nobody can live up to it. Nobody can live up to that. Nobody can, nobody can pull that off. Nobody can be that righteous. We're all broken. We all have sin in our life, not just mistakes, but sin. And we've been separated from God. And what we need now is restoration. And immediately, once he helps everybody understand how broken they are, it's not about you're hopeless, you're miserable, you should feel terrible about yourself. It's this. God wants to restore you. Immediately, God wants you back. God wants the broken stuff to be out of the way. God can't wait to forgive you. God wants this. He wants you back in, 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 in relationship with him. He doesn't want this distance. So Jesus fires off three parables, rapid fire, quick. One, the, the story of the lost sheep. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders off, the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes to look after the one that was lost. The heart of the shepherd is always for the one who's lost. If a widow has a hundred coins and one rolls under the couch, she leaves the 99 on the table, she looks around, looks for the lost one. And finally, the last parable of the three is the one we know the best. And if you come to church here a lot, you've heard it because it's my favorite part of the whole Bible. And it's the story of the lost son. Now in the story of the lost son, there's a boy who says to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I know I'm going to inherit when you die, and you're just taking so long to die. I'd like to have my money now. Remember, this is a story. This didn't actually happen. This is Jesus giving us an illustration. So in the illustration, in the story, the fictitious boy says to his fictitious father, I wish you were dead. And the father in the story says, 
Okay, fine, I'm going to give you the money. He gives the kid the money. The boy takes the money and goes to another city. He goes to a distant land, and I mean right there in the scripture, he blows it all on drugs and prostitutes. That's what he does. So he finds himself broke. Eventually the money runs out. He's in a distant city. He's broke. A famine hits the land. He's hungry. He's starving. He's filthy. He never understood. He never thought a child of, a child of, of, of plenty, a child that came from a blessed lineage could end up so filthy and so broken. So he says, I, I have to go back. I have to go back to my father. But the relationship is broken. I've, I've screwed up so badly. I, I'll just ask him if I can be a servant. So the boy goes back to his father in the story, and here's what he says. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. The son comes back to the father and he knows. He knows he's guilty. He knows he did wrong. He knows he broke this relationship. He knows he broke his father's heart. So when he comes to him, what words does Jesus put in his mouth? Remember, this is Jesus writing a script. He's writing this little play. What words does the author of the play give to this character in the play? He says, I have sinned. And I, I, I've broken the relationship. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I know the father-son thing is done. I know I jacked it all up. He doesn't come home and go, Dad, mistakes were made. But those women were really seductive, so it's only partially my fault. And you know I have an addictive personality, so you know it's not really my fault. And you know, and he, he doesn't hedge the bet. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't come around it. He doesn't try to spin doctor it. He doesn't try to control the narrative. He just owns it. He owns it. And so the Lord is waiting for us. The Father doesn't even let him finish. He just goes, quick, bring a robe, bring a ring for his finger. And that would have been the family seal, by the way. Yeah, this son gets to, gets to be a member of the family again. Bring him some sandals, bring him some clothing. We're going to clean him up. And so the party began because he was lost and was found. Why? Because he made a mistake and admitted it? No, because he owned it. He owned what he had done. He owned his place. He owned that he had broken his father's heart and severed the relationship. Every time Jesus talks about sin, he does it with an eye towards restoration. It's not condemnation Jesus is after. It's restoration. And so God wants to be restored to you. And just as you will never be restored, you can pretend, you can act nice, you can make nice and change the subject, but you know and I know, you will never be restored to a son or daughter who's betrayed you until they own it. So we must own what we've done and reconnect with our Heavenly Father. That's what sin means, and that's what Jesus is talking about when he mentions it. Now, 
if you're, I'm going to wrap this up with this, if you are in a community group, and I hope every one of you is in a community group, if you'd like to, we've got groups just starting now talking about this message series. If you're on a starting point, your faith journey has a starting point, and right now we're kind of, all of us as a church, pressing reset. If you'd like to talk with some other people while they're on their journey to walk alongside you and to connect, join a community group. Make yourself known at the welcome desk. If you're in a group, these are the questions I want you to talk about this week. Do you resist the idea that you're a sinner? Is that something you resist? And is that question offensive to you? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Ponder that in your community groups. And with that, I'm going to close in prayer. And we'll pick it right up from here next week for part three of Starting Point. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do. And we just admit that we're broken. We have it in us, Father, to spin doctor things. We have it in us to spin the narrative and, and hedge our bets and use words like mistakes. We have it in us to make excuses and come up with a whole host of reasons why it wasn't really our fault. But Father, as much as we have that in us, we also have in us your thumbprint. And we hear you calling. We want to be restored to you. Me, all of us, Father, we all need your forgiveness so badly. Lord, would you give us courage enough today? Would you give us faith enough today? Would you give us just spine enough today, backbone enough today to own what we've done and to come back to you for restoration. May that be so in my life. May that be so in all of our lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word True North to 77977 on your cell phone, and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.